On this episode of the London Lyceum, we bring you an exclusive episode of the podcast. It is our YouTube special edition roundtable on covenant theology. This was broadcast live, so listeners had the chance to give Q&A with four tremendous scholars of covenant theology. So we had Dr. Stephen Wellam, Dr. Sam Renahan, Dr. Guy Waters, and Dr. Michael Beck all join us for a full two hours of action-packed content discussing covenant theology. Is the Abrahamic covenant the covenant of grace? Are Old Testament saints regenerated and dwelt? And much, much more. So as always, if you don't listen or watch on YouTube, do go ahead and click the YouTube link anyway. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. It helps us to produce and promote quality content across the internet. Now, if you like YouTube better than the podcast, you can go ahead and just click the link and watch it there too. As always, there's a good chunk of five, six minutes of intro material in here explaining the format. So if you want to go ahead and skip that, you're more than welcome to. If you want that to help you orient the discussion, go ahead and listen to the whole thing. Just click it on 1.2 speed. That's what I do anyway. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can just up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet. We think this one's going to get you thinking. Awesome. Well, I'd like to welcome everyone here to old friends, new friends, everybody in between to our Covenant Theology Roundtable event hosted by the London Lyceum. And this is really the brainchild of Brandon Askew. Um, so I, I'm excited about this one. I'm Jordan Stefaniak, uh, one of uh, the members of the London Lyceum, and we've got Brandon with us as well, as well as four uh, other guys we'll introduce here in a moment. But I wanted to give you a little bit of an idea. So if this is the first time you've ever heard or known anything about the London Lyceum, I mean, we're all about thinking, uh, which is why we put together these events. And we want to have an avenue for serious thinking that promotes things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism with people who think differently on important topics. So we seek a virtuous kind of thinking that we hope will encourage you both in word and in deed. And yes, before anybody asks, this will be available on YouTube. Uh, it's going to be available on your favorite podcast app at some point in the future. So don't forget, if you're watching it right now, subscribe, like, share, you know, all those sort of things so that we can continue to share content to encourage people across the globe. Now, let's go ahead and get down to business because I know you all are here and excited for this event and not for me. Um, we're here to discuss covenant theology, and I'm really excited about it. So we've got four guests. I'm going to give you a little bit of an introduction so you know who they are if you don't already. So we have Dr. Sam Renahan with us. He lives in Los Angeles with his wife, Kimberly, and their son, Owen, where he's pastor of Trinity Reformed Baptist Church. Sam is also an adjunct professor at International Reformed Baptist Seminary, IRBS, and has authored various books on covenant theology, uh, Baptist history, and the doctrine of God in English and in Spanish. So I'm going to link to them if you're watching this on YouTube or, or the podcast, listening on the podcast later, so you can go get them. Uh, they're all very awesome, and they are uh, up to, I guess, I don't know what, what the word is for it. I mean, they're they're readable. So your church members can actually use these in in their uh, everyday ministry in churches. So then we also have Dr. Michael Beck. He received his PhD uh, from the South African Theological Seminary. His dissertation was on the covenant theology of Meredith Klein, uh, on his relationship to Reformed Two Kingdom Theology, currently being prepared for, a dis for publication, hopefully by the end of the year. Mike seeks to, to 
sustain regular, lively, and open theological discussion from a distinctly Kleinian perspective, uh, particularly the Two Kingdom and Reformed Baptist perspective. In this regard, he hosts the Two Age Sojourner podcast, now at episode 400, which is, wow, that's a lot. So they also have YouTube stuff, so you can go check them out there. In 2005, he and his wife were sent from South Africa to New Zealand to plant Grace Net Community Church part of the Fellowship of Reformed Baptist Churches in New Zealand. And once planted in 2007, Mike also accepted the call to serve as the church's pastor. In an ongoing commitment to the training of future pastors, he has also joined the faculty of Grace Theological College in New Zealand, teaching Old Testament and biblical theology. And Mike has been married to Candace for 18 happy years, and they live in Wellington, which is the capital of New Zealand, and they have three amazing and truly Kiwi children. We also have Dr. Guy Waters, and he's the James M. Baird uh, Jr. Professor of New Testament with a particular interest in the letters and theology of St. Paul, the use of Scripture in the New Testament, and the Synoptic Gospels. He received his bachelor's from UPenn, his MDiv from Westminster, and his PhD from Duke University. Prior to coming to RTS Jackson in 2007, he spent one year teaching Hellenistic Greek at Duke Divinity School and five years as assistant professor of biblical studies at Bellhaven College. And in 2003, he became a teaching elder in the Mississippi Valley Presbyterian, uh, I guess, Presbytery, PCA. He served as the chair of the Credentials Committee for more than 10 years. And finally, we have Dr. Stephen Wellam. Uh, He is a professor of Christian theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and editor of the Southern Baptist Journal of Theology, and he's been at Southern since 1999. He received his Ph.D. from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He pastored with the EFCA in South Dakota, and he has served as associate pastor and interim pastor. He has a ton of publications. He's written various essays, articles. I think the ones that you probably are most well-known for, particularly for this topic, are his works with Peter Gentry on Kingdom Through Covenant, which has two editions, uh, and he also has this small small version that is more digestible than the 800-page magnum opus. Um, he also has Progressive uh, Covenantalism, which he was the editor of, as well as being the author of several theology, theology books like God the Son Incarnate, The Doctrine and the Person of Christ, Christ Alone, The Uniqueness of Jesus as Savior, and The Person of Christ. An introduction. And he also just finished his volume one of two volumes of a systematic theology to pub- be published with BH. So make sure to be on the lookout for that. And he's married to Karen and has five adult children and three grand- grandchildren. So now, you know, everybody, three housekeeping items before we start. I've got a couple stacks of books. So you can see lots of books. We've got uh, this massive covenant theology one with, with Guy Waters on the front of it. We've got um, three that are from Dr. Wellam, or he's included in them anyway. This Covenantal Covenantal and Dispensational Theologies, Five Views Book, Progressive Covenantalism, God's Kingdom Through God's Covenants, and then we have Dr. Sam Renahan's The Mystery of Christ book. Um, So I want to give some of these books away. So if you want some books, just tag us on Twitter, uh, do hashtag Covenant Theology Roundtable, and say something about the event. Um, you can say it's awesome. You can say you have a question. You can just say, give me free books, whatever you want to do, do that. I want to give some books away from these awesome guys. And Michael, whenever your book comes out, if we do another event, we'll give away one of your books. So be on the lookout for that. Um, second quick rundown. I mean, we're going to give everybody an initial eight ish minutes 
to give sort of a constructive statement of how they think covenant theology functions before we give everybody a rebuttal time of individual, just them. They get to say what they want to say in response to others where they think maybe we'd tweak this or we'd reject this or we'd want to amplify this before we have a half-ish hour of free discussion time and then uh, between our guests, and then we'll open it up to audience questions. So audience, if you have questions, you can chat them in here now. You can tweet us to them. You can do whatever. I'm going to try to keep up with all of them and uh, ask those questions for you guys. So finally, we're ready. If there's an internet issue, as you know, I've got a backup plan for us now, but hopefully this works. I'm excited about it. So our key topic for discussion, covenant theology. So example questions, just to set the table. Is there a covenant of grace? Is there a covenant of works? If so, what are they? What is the substance of each covenant in Scripture? Should the Abrahamic covenant uh, be understood as the covenant of grace? How much progress should we see in the revelation between Old Testament to New Testament? So those sort of questions we hope to ask. So we're going to begin with uh, Dr. Sam Renahan. He will lead us off, and then we'll go through... Uh, give everybody a chance. So I'm I'm really excited about this. So Dr. Renahan, I'll let you let you take very, it away. Very briefly before we yeah. begin, can uh, if you're not speaking, um, if it's not your turn to speak, can we make sure we all have our our uh, mics muted to to cut down on any background noise? Okay, that'd be great. And then just we'll remind you to unmute if you start talking and we can't hear you. So all right, go ahead, Dr. Renahan. Sorry. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you, Brandon, uh, and thank you to my esteemed colleagues who are joining us. Michael, I didn't know that you got your PhD. That's so great. Congratulations. Not to waste any more time, um, I, I prepared according to the questions, Jordan, that you gave to us to sort of lead these initial statements. Uh, and because time is short, you'll have to bear with me if I try to get as much information in as possible in, in a short amount of time. If we ask the question, is there a covenant of grace and covenant of works, uh, we affirm uh, I would affirm, yes, there absolutely is. There is a covenant of works because covenants are not natural arrangements. They're not a part of the creator-creature relation. And we see that in the in God's dealings with Adam, God advanced him beyond his created state by giving him additional obligations, positive laws, as well as promises unto him that would have been unknowable and unavailable apart from God uh, making them known or giving them to Adam. So God advances Adam beyond his created state through the the condition of, or the command of guarding and keeping the garden, as well as not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the promise of eternal life from which he is forbidden when they are banished from the garden. So when we look at that, and we also consider that God dealt with Adam not as a private person, but as a public person, he dealt with him federally as a head uh, his actions uh, affected those whom he represented based on Romans chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 15. We see that God dealt with Adam federally. We see that God uh, dealt with him in, in addition to his created state. And all of this uh, in sum and in brief amounts to the doctrine of the covenant of works. If Adam uh, keeps God's commandments, if he does what God has commanded, he will uh, enjoy and receive that promise of everlasting life. We also find that Adam, of course, broke that covenant and brought corruption and condemnation on mankind, and God made a covenant of grace. And in Jeremiah 31, we find the promise that man's condemnation and his corruption will be removed. God will remove our condemnation by forgiving our sins, and God will remove our corruption by giving us a new heart. 
And we receive this saving grace uh, by faith, which Paul calls the, the gift of God. He says, all of this salvation which we receive by faith is the gift of God. Those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved freely. And in resting and receiving in resting in and receiving Jesus Christ by faith, that salvation which we receive in him, it's not the salary of a worker, but the free gift of God. And so that is gracious redemption in a covenant of grace. God promises to forgive our sins and renew us. He requires of us faith in him while also providing that faith to us in Jesus Christ. So we see a covenant of works and we see a covenant of grace in scripture. And to be clear, I'm equating the new covenant uh, and the new covenant of grace. They are one and the same in my understanding. It's Jeremiah 31, uh, the promise of that of that covenant and the covenant which Jesus establishes whereby uh, the curse of the covenant of works is undone. If we ask the next question, what's the substance of each uh, covenant in Scripture, I think we need to be cautious or hesitant, uh, perhaps, about the use of the language lest this system override revelation and, and scripture in a case such as this, because a covenant is whatever God ordains it to be. If, if God says, these are the I will commitments and these are the you will commitments, that's what the covenant is. And so if we use substance language, what we're asking is essentially, what are the commitments of this covenant? And if two covenants have the exact same commitments, then we could say that they are the same covenant. So they would have to have the same promises in order to be the same in substance. Um, or another way to look at that is they would have to accomplish the same effects. If this covenant accomplishes this effect and another covenant accomplishes the same effect, uh, then we would say, okay, that's the same promise, that's the same covenant. Uh, but we, sh we should be careful not to just equate covenants because there is necessarily something in common between them. You have to consider each one uh, individually. So if we get specific and say, well, is the Abrahamic covenant a covenant of grace? Um, it's an important question, but I actually reject the premise of the question. <laughs> uh, namely, that we, the premise being, as I understand it, that covenants should be sorted as covenants of works or covenants of grace. Uh, sometimes that kind of thinking of a covenant is the covenant of works or is the covenant of grace or is a covenant of works or is a covenant of grace, sometimes that comes from a misuse or misunderstanding of Galatians 4.24 and the two covenants. In Reformed theology, Protestant theology, many times, Baptist or Paedo-Baptist, uh, people have looked at that verse and said, okay, there are two covenants, and we should try and sort covenants based on those two. And so is the Abrahamic covenant a covenant of grace or the covenant of grace? I, of course, fully affirm a law-gospel distinction, uh, but I would not use that to sort covenants. Again, a covenant is what God ordains it to be, and its commitments are the commitments that God establishes. And when we when we consider that, that a covenant is based on commitments, according to however God establishes it, then whatever God commits on his side, he will fulfill. Whatever God has said, I will do this, he will certainly fulfill that. He has sworn he cannot change his mind, or he will not change his mind, and also uh, if he, he he can't swear by any greater, he swears by himself, I, I will do this. So in that sense, any promise that God makes, he will fulfill. Uh, it is his very name to keep covenant. At the same time, there are, there are covenants in which God conditions the enjoyment, the reception or the enjoyment of what he has promised on the fulfillment uh, of a certain action in the covenant servant or the covenant partner. And so we have to look at each covenant and say, well, what has God committed? What has he committed man to? Or to what has he committed man? 
and consider the balance or the arrangement of those promises and conditions. If we narrow our focus to the Abrahamic covenant and say, okay, what has God committed to do and what does he commit man to do or Abraham to do, we find in Genesis 15 in particular that God says, I will multiply your descendants. I will bring them into the inheritance of Canaan. I will certainly do this. And God will do it invincibly uh, without any doubt. But in Genesis 17, verses 9 through 14, God expands the covenant and he says, but as for you, you and your offspring after you, you must keep, you must shamar, you must guard the covenant. Well, what does that mean? What do we do? You are to circumcise yourselves, the male offspring, on the eighth day. And God says, if you do not, if you refuse this, then you have broken the covenant and you are cut off from it. So that means that God has made an invincible promise to multiply Abraham's descendants and bring them into Canaan. But he's also required that in order to enjoy that inheritance, uh, Abraham and his offspring have to be faithful in keeping the covenant. They must keep the covenant. They must keep circumcision. It can be broken. They can be cut off from it. When you see that God's made invincible promises on his part, but man must keep his part in order to enjoy those promises, the question doesn't make sense. Is the covenant, is the Abrahamic covenant a covenant of grace? We would say, well, Genesis 15 is invincible. Genesis 17 is conditional. It's not two different covenants. It's God's commitments and man's commitments and the relation between them two. And so that's why I would reject the, the premise of the question. If we then ask, is the covenant, is the Abrahamic covenant not a covenant of grace, but the covenant of grace? Is it the covenant whereby the curse of the covenant of works is undone? Uh, then I would also say, not exactly. It promises that that will happen in history, but it doesn't actually affect it itself. Uh, if we if we say, is the Abrahamic covenant the same as the new covenant? We can consider, are the commitments the same? Are the effects the same? And the promise of the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant uh, are not exactly the same. The Abrahamic covenant promises land, and it promises descendants, etc., and it promises a blessing for the nations. That's where it overlaps with the new covenant, is that blessing for the nations. But the way in which the Abrahamic covenant promises the blessing for the nations and the way that the new covenant provides that blessing are distinct. The Abrahamic covenant gives you the Christ in history according to the flesh. He will be born. He will bless. The new covenant gives you the blessing that he has come to provide uh, in history. And so the, the promise seems the same because the same Christ is Abrahamic covenant promises the Christ, and the new covenant gives or provides or promises the Christ, but not in the same way. The effect is not the same. The Abrahamic covenant sets apart an earthly people in an earthly inheritance with an outward earthly holiness, which is a different effect than what the new covenant brings about. It brings about a heavenly people with a heavenly inheritance and an inward renewal and an inward holiness. Uh, I didn't start my timer. Am I doing okay on my eight minutes? Yeah, you've got it. Just take two minutes. Yeah, you've got it. Just take two minutes. All right. I'll, I'll, I'm, we're getting there. Uh, in, in Romans, uh, this is going to be the generalization of all generalizations. In Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Hebrews, I would argue that Paul makes the point again and again that the old covenant made nothing perfect. It granted a different kind of righteousness and holiness than that of the new covenant, and yet it was preparatory, always preparatory for and subservient to 
the new covenant. So to return to the old covenant is not just to misunderstand redemptive history and the trajectory of the old covenant, but to go back to the old covenant would be to say that Jesus Jesus is not the Christ because new covenant perfection has not yet come if we go back to the old. So to conclude, how much progress should we see in Revelation between the Old Testament and New Testament? There's a movement from mystery to clarity, from typology to eschatology, from weakness to perfection, from prophecy to reality, from shadow to substance, from searching to knowing, from waiting to obtaining. And the Old Covenant did not effect, it did not bring about the same, um, the same effects uh, that the New Covenant did. And in the New Covenant, we find that clarity, eschatology, perfection, reality, substance, knowledge, uh, and obtaining or receiving of the inheritance that Jesus won for all his people, Jew and Gentile, based on the same uh, foundation, faith in himself. Awesome. Thanks, Dr. Renahan. So I will go ahead and move it over to Dr. Michael Beck. You are up to uh, go ahead and give us your initial constructive statement. Thanks, Jordan. I'll just start my timer. See? See how good I am. I'm starting my timer. Won't forget. Got eight minutes. I'm looking at the clock. Oh my goodness. Better start speaking. Um, guys, it's a, it's a great privilege to, to be talking with you about the subject. I love it. Um, really feel very privileged to be on the panel. Um, I know I'm going to take full advantage of this, even if I just hope I can provide decent uh, discussion partnership with you. <laughs> That's my only hope in this whole thing. Um, but let me k- get going. I uh, really just want to uh, articulate a... Um, a version of covenant theology that um, attempts to align with the 1689. So, I, you know, it's not the version, it's not uh, a particularly prominent historical version, but just something that embraces the best of what I see covenant theology to offer and um, stays within alignment to the 1689, particularly on the subjects of baptism. And then one of the things that I really appreciate about the 1689 as well is the way that it kind of brings out this biblical theological emphasis. And uh, that's something I'd hope to capture in whatever form of uh, covenant theology comes across. I know the the expression 20th century Reformed Baptist view is now in vogue, and that's often set against the 1689 federalism within Baptist circles anyway. Um, to be honest, I haven't been overly concerned with these. I think that um, I kind of get where, where that's going. Look, if, if just to help people kind of peg me, uh, if, if that's a good way to describe, let's say, the views of Dr. Sam Waldron or Dr. Fred Malone or whoever's written about this uh, recently, then I'm totally happy to move along with that label. Um, I, my, my one problem, though, is that I, I, there's this other kind of strand of Reformed Baptist theology um, that, that I won't mention names, but it's kind of very mono-covenantal, you know, and it's like they got hold of mono-covenantalism and they just dunked it. And uh, I don't really want anything to do with that. I'm on the other side of that of that score. And really, I'm, I'm very close to uh, Dr. Renihan here um, with his strong, strong law gospel contrast. I think that's absolutely usually important. And even concepts like republication, um, I, w- I would come very close to what uh, Sam is saying there. Um, I can't go all the way with him. So that's where I come in, I suppose. And, um, and leaving those labels aside for a second, let me try and give you just a, a quick positive overview. Um, in a nutshell, just a, I hold to the broader theological perspective uh, construct the classic trifold schema in other words i believe in the covenant of redemption made in the in the council uh, of eternity within the triune godhead that plan is then enacted in history in these two overarching theological realities first the covenant of works in the garden 
Um, I'm 100% with Klein on that one, seeing that that needs to be a works covenant, a 100% legal uh, covenant. But then after the fall, you've got the covenant of grace that begins, uh, and it you might say was inaugurated as early as Genesis 3.15, then progresses and is formally confirmed, ratified in the Abrahamic covenant, that runs through, I would say, the Mosaic economy, subserved by the, the Mosaic covenant itself. Um, and uh, confirmed in the Davidic covenant and reaches its full expression or is most clearly revealed in the new covenant or culminates in the new covenant. So I suppose immediately that sets me at odds a little bit with what Sam was saying there in that I wouldn't say it is the new covenant. And uh, one of the reasons I feel that way is just because I feel like that might conflate these biblical exegetical categories, uh, these things that we're all seeing in the scripture, these covenants, uh, with more of a theological, systematic theological construct. Um, so I really like what, what Sam Waldron says in his exposition of the 1689. I'm sure listeners would, would be familiar with that work. Um, where he says, the Bible never actually uses the word covenant to refer to an overarching covenant of grace, which spans the whole of human history. Uh, each use of the term to refer to a divine covenant in the Bible refers to a covenant made by God at some specific historical epoch. Uh, none of these covenants may simply be equated with what the confession describes as the covenant of grace. And so I don't think that that is, um, you know, less true. Well, it's not like the covenant of grace is less true because it can't be derived from from the text directly. Um, you know, theology is just as important. Theological constructs are, 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 are key. Um, but um, I do think that's important to distinguish at some level because it allows us to, you know, see this overarching principle of grace and yet also appreciate the historical specifics of each covenant and uh, not get too uh, tied up by that. So I think, you know, as, as I've thought about it, perhaps this is one of the main things that creates, uh, in my view, a bit of a tension with, with uh, Sam's view and even uh, the Westminster view, um, because, you know, I'm saying that the, the covenant of grace wasn't exactly the same thing as the new covenant, uh, you know, and that, that, would, that would go a little bit, uh, that would take me in one direction. And then it's also not exactly the same thing as the Abrahamic covenant. So, you know, that, that leaves me at odds with a lot of what the Westminster guys are saying. Um, I would just simply see the Abrahamic covenant being fundamentally gracious, a gracious covenant, uh, covenant at least. I see that um, in, for a few different reasons. We'll probably get into the specifics down the line. Um, but that means it has a unique, purposeful place in the biblical story. It's setting things up for the Mosaic covenant. It's organically connected to that, certainly. Um, and yet, there is this very real access that the saints during that time had to the the realities that Christ came to fulfill in the new covenant. In other words, uh, I know Dr. Renan doesn't like the word administered and feels it's perhaps unhelpful for Baptists to use it. I like it. I think it's good. I think it actually captures exactly what I'm going for in that, um, you know, it is talking about an access to grace through the, these means that God had provided. Um, I know earlier on, uh, uh, Sam and Micah wrote an article using Klein's language, sort of preferring inbreaking or retroactivity to talk about that. And, um, and I certainly have no problem with Klein and his language there. I think that's great, eschatological intrusion. I suppose I would just argue for more of an organic link as well. I think as Klein himself shows, the idea of, of inbreaking, uh, it doesn't really go against the concept of administration, but rather works to show that it was precisely through the organic and sacramental administration of the covenant of grace that this realized eschatology of the Old Covenant order came into full effect. So I would see, uh, so I love what uh, Lee Irons wrote, for example, when he talks about the, 
as sacraments, the sacrifices were a real and efficacious means of grace to the elect Israelites. When offered in faith, the benefits of Christ's atonement were applied to them by means of the type. Um, and in this sense, the sacrifices mediated the present spiritual realities and benefits to Old Testament believers functioning in their inner core as part of the realized eschatology, at least, of the Old Covenant order. Uh, maybe just one more quote here. Uh, I like what Scott Clark would say, for example, uh, God the Spirit was sovereignly operating within his people through the sacrifices, through the ceremonies, through the prophetic word to bring the elect to new life and to true faith, ultimately in Jesus the Messiah. So, uh, you know, rounding up then, uh, I'd say I'm completely in alignment with 1689 federalism and what Sam's just said in terms of law gospel contrast and, of course, subjects of baptism. But I find myself completely aligned with the Westminster Reformed position in regard to the need for an overarching covenant of grace and and that uh, principle of continuity. Um, and so I think, I think I like the way the confession puts it, to be honest, I think in chapter seven, paragraph three, with the way it talks about the new covenant, or at least, sorry, the covenant of grace, uh, being most fully revealed, uh, in the new covenant. And, um, and again, you know, I think, I think what, what Waldron points out there is that, and rightly so, uh, not at all doubting or disputing the historic, historical reality or whether it was a, a legitimate historical position, uh, that 1689 federalism is is advocating. I'm sure it was. I'll leave uh, the historical experts to that. But um, but it just seems to demand more than the confession itself demands, I suppose. So I, hopefully there's room for both views in that, um, because I would like to try and retain some of that alignment to the greater Reformed community in their, in their understanding of uh, covenant theology. And that's eight minutes on the dot. Thank you. That's a wrap. Awesome. I'll man. come back to all of that later. You crushed it. And everybody who's chatting questions, I'm trying to capture them and keep a log of them so that hopefully, I mean, we're going to have more questions than we have time to answer, but I'm going to keep track of them as best I can as they come to you as everybody's speaking. So now I'll kick it off to Dr. Guy Waters, who is our lone Presbyterian representative, but no less loved. So we appreciate you being here and being part of this. Um, So Dr. Waters, I'll let you go ahead and take it away. No. Thank you, Jordan. And yes, the love is palpable. Uh, Very grateful to be among you brothers and uh, grateful to be part of this uh, panel discussion. So I've got a few minutes to to set forth some constructive statements, and I'll I'll follow the basic pattern that that both Sam and Michael have followed, the prompt questions that were distributed to us, and it will come as no shock or surprise that I hold to the system of doctrine contained in the Westminster Standards. So as far as my understanding of covenants is concerned, that's going to come out of the Westminster Standards, not because they're in the Westminster Standards, but because I believe the Westminster Standards have uh, fairly and well summarized the teaching of Scripture. So uh, what do the Westminster Standards say in short with respect to these questions? Well, We, of course, have already raised the question of a covenant of redemption. I believe that that's taught in Scripture. It's implicit uh, in the Westminster Standards. We can talk about that further, but I think our uh, points of discussion really concentrate on the covenant of grace, covenant of works, and would embrace both. I see a fundamentally bi-covenantal structure to the historical covenants that God makes with human beings, covenant of works, 
sometimes called the first covenant or the covenant of life, covenant of grace, second covenant. Covenant of works, um, I was affirming and ticking along with what Dr. Renahan was saying about the covenant of works so well. Uh, the, the promise, the threat, the uh, representative capacity of uh, Adam, the time of his probation, its implications for his natural posterity, and setting up, in, in many ways, the uh, covenant of grace. Now, I think where I'm going to part ways with previous two speakers is that I would see the covenant of grace as inaugurated uh, in the garden, not in pre-fall, pre-lapsarian um, humanity, but immediately following the fall. And Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I would take to be the first announcement of the gospel, the, the uh, well-known term, the Proto-Evangelion. And out of this promise... Uh, comes the fullness of the redemptive promises of Scripture until they reach their intended culmination in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so I see a, a single covenant of grace uh, that for substance uh, entails two things. One is a common set of promises, and I've spoken of these uh, just just now, promises that concern the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, the God-man, come in the fullness of time. And the second concerns the people of this covenant, that there is one people uh, whom God uh, calls to himself, and this people is in covenant relationship with him. And I see a genetic identity as we move uh, through redemptive history uh, from old to new uh, in this people so that Paul can tell the New Covenant community, as he does in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, Israel are your fathers. He can tell Gentile Galatians, you are a son of Abraham, if you have Abraham's faith. So a single people and a single set of promises. And so this one covenant is going to be administered over the course of redemptive history. And so I would speak of the Abrahamic covenant as an administration of the covenant of grace or the new covenant as an administration of the covenant of grace. These are not interchangeable parts. Obviously, there's a principle of progression and the, the, the two factors at work as we move throughout redemptive history is that God both expands and extends uh, that which he has committed himself to do in that initial gospel promise. So we see an expansion as he reveals more and more of his purposes with respect to Christ, uh, his uh, mediatorial offices, prophet, priest, and king, the uh, nature of what it is that he has promised, uh, redemption, both negatively, the, the removal of sin, its guilt, its dominion, ultimately its presence, and the bestowal of full eschatological life in the fullness of time. That is gradually and more and more fully revealed over the course of redemptive history. But there's also the principle of extension, and that is God is going to extend these promises to wider and wider circles. God does not contract, he expands. And so we begin with Abraham and then the family of Abraham, 
And the people of God, by and large, are genetically Jewish, but the covenant principle, the covenant that God makes with Abraham, is not predicated on Jewishness. Uh, It is predicated on uh, being a member of the household of Abraham, which in his circumstances did encompass uh, servants, uh, perhaps others. And the uh, covenant people of God is expanded at its widest extent at the dawn of the new covenant. Peter's words uh, to the crowd on the day of Pentecost, uh, this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off. And of course, all who are afar off, Acts 22, Ephesians 2 is a reference to the Gentiles. And so by divine command, this promise now goes out into the world, into the nations. Gentiles are being enfolded into the one covenant people of God, partaking of the covenant promises uh, that had been extended to Israel in days of old. So extension and expansion. Then the question is asked, how much progress should we see in Revelation between the Old Testament and the New Testament? And we want, of course, to to avoid two extremes. Uh, The first extreme is that we flatten legitimate differences among the covenants. There, There are differences, and we want to respect this principle of extension and expansion. Uh, God is uh, doing greater and greater things in the course of redemptive history. And so we we don't want to flatten the legitimate differences. Uh, At the same time, we don't want to divorce or separate what God has put together, that we are looking at administrations, covenants that exist in organic continuity, uh, that are an organic relationship with one another. And so want to take care not to sever them uh, where scripture holds them together. So I would speak then of a unity in uh, diversity, uh, underlying unity. And within that underlying unity, there is a diversity of administration. And so we can uh, respect and explore that diversity, uh, provided we maintain that biblical unity that underlies. And as we go from the old covenant into the new covenant, we're not seeing an absolute difference as we go from the Mosaic covenant to the new covenant, but we are seeing uh, an extension and expansion of the same, uh, the, the knowledge of God, the uh, breadth with which uh, hu- uh, uh, the sphere of human beings who experience the mercies of God. And so when God says, for instance, I will forgive their sins and remember them no more, Uh, The people of God under the Old Covenant experience the forgiveness of sins exactly as New Covenant saints do. Uh, David and Abraham were forgiven and forgiven on the same grounds as New Covenant believers. The difference moving into the New is that the historical basis on which God forgives the sins of a sinner in any age has now been accomplished in the death of Jesus Christ. And so for that reason, Forgiveness can be attached to the new covenant in a way that it's not to previous administrations. So that would be an illustration of the way that I would see unity and diversity working out. There there will be others, I'm sure we'll get into them, but that's the way in which I think Scripture holds the whole together 
while respecting the, the appropriate biblical diversity among the various covenants of Scripture. Awesome. Thanks, Dr. Waters. And finally, we have Dr. Stephen Wellam to provide his own initial constructive statement. And now here's your commercial. Go buy one of these cool mugs that we have. We distinguish Go London Lyceum. All right, Dr. Dr. Wellam, I'll let you go ahead and take the show. Thank you. Uh, glad to be with you and uh, to be part of the uh, covenant uh, discussion. Um, as I listen to uh, each of the uh, the various speakers, obviously there's there's so much agreement. It's um, it's often how you you put it together in the details. So the basic uh, storyline of scripture um, and the various covenantal structure. Uh, I, I would also argue that tied to uh, eternity is uh, is the pactum, uh, the, the covenant of redemption, uh, then shows itself out in, in redemptive history. Um, I would hold to uh, a covenant of creation or a covenant of works. I mean, basically the same context of Adam as a federal head. Um, he is created as image, but he enters into covenant relationship. He represents us, sadly brings us all down, and we thus need uh, the last Adam uh, to come. And there needs to be perfect obedience, and that's a very, very important truth. So uh, that is a very, very important uh, concept to hold to, the covenant in creation, covenant of works, Adam's federal head. And uh, the issue then becomes with uh, the notion of the covenant of grace, what one means by it. Uh, um, I'm hesitant to use the term uh, first, uh, simply because um, uh, we don't. It's, it is a theological construct. I'm, I'm very happy with theological constructs. Uh, yet I want to make sure that they are tied to, to uh, Scripture. And uh, so the concept of the covenant of grace really functions as the unpacking of, of the pactum worked out in, in history in terms of the, the plan of redemption uh, centered in Christ for his people. And uh, so in that sense, I would be fully in agreement with the covenant of grace if that's what we mean by it, but it functions in different theological systems to, uh, to lead to different conclusions. So that's why we have to specify very carefully uh, how we lay this out. If I were to be pushed, I probably would uh, be more in sympathy with um, Sam and the 1689 Federalist by saying that uh, uh, in Genesis 3.15, we have the initial promise of redemption. There's a clear distinction between pre-fall, post-fall, uh, between uh, what Adam uh, is to do and uh, disobeyed, and the hope that now comes in the seed, you know, ultimately Christ. Uh, and so there is a crucial Adam-Christ distinction in scripture so you can say uh, redemption begins in genesis 3:15. there is no covenant inauguration that takes place there one has to read that in yet the promise is there and the promise is centered in christ and that promise that seed promise unfolds through the covenants through the entire canon and uh, i would say ultimately if you were to be pushed in terms of the covenant of grace would be tied to the new covenant uh, the old testament covenants are the progressive unfolding and unveiling and anticipating of that which comes in in Christ, and then we have to do justice to uh, how the one plan of God unfolds in redemptive history through these these covenants. So there's one plan uh, tied ultimately to God's decree and ultimately the pactum, uh, yet uh, it unfolds through a plurality of covenants, and it's important to let each covenant then uh, to to see its role, right? So the role of Adam as foundational, uh, his disobedience, the plan of redemption beginning in uh, Genesis uh, 3.15, that then gets unpacked first with Noah, Noah, where you have a creation reality very similar to another Adam, uh, yet uh, uniquely with Abraham, a new start. Uh, 
uh, in the way that's the way it's presented in in terms of of scripture so that genesis 1 to 11 is is a unit obviously we distinguish 1 and 2 from 3 through 11 uh, pre-fall post-fall yet uh, abraham is a fresh start uh, but abraham uh, ultimately uh, bears uh, the promise of genesis 3:15. through him will come the promised seed so when abraham believes god that's ultimately tied to the seed that's tied to other things as well the Abrahamic covenant is multifaceted. We have to let it function in its own redemptive historical context. But it ultimately points beyond itself. It anticipates, it reveals. All the covenants reveal and are prophetic in that sense. They point forward. They reveal what is to come ultimately in terms of the new covenant, the coming of uh, the Redeemer. So the old covenant in its multifaceted sense, we can't equate it one for one with the new covenant. We cannot just simply... Uh, Guy's concern of flattening the covenants is my concern as well. Uh, I may uh, disagree that uh, covenant theology may do that in a few places, and we can talk about that. But uh, certainly uh, the old, the, the Abrahamic covenant, the old covenant, so on, we have to look at how they function as unfolding this glorious plan of redemption that leads to the coming of Christ, which is all there from Genesis 3.15 on, yet through type and shadow, through prophetic anticipation, uh, each of the covenants are contributing to the coming of, of Christ. So that when we speak about the substance of the covenants, obviously um, uh, that which is tied to the promises. So the substance of the old covenant is, or the, um, the, the, um, uh, the covenant of works or the covenant of creation with Adam is tied to uh, his relationship with God, his obedience, uh, his, his demand for perfect obedience. But once you get to Genesis 3.15, uh, you have the promise of redemption. That promise carries through through all the covenants. That's why I'm hesitant to simply divide, uh, you know, the no even the Noahic, but particularly Abrahamic, Old, um, Davidic, uh, New Covenant, simply in terms of, well, one, some of these covenants are unconditional and some of them are conditional. There's truth in that, obviously, uh, yet there's a combination, right? God, as Lord uh, of us, demands always perfect obedience. That carries through from not only Adam, but through every single covenant. Yet, uh, from Genesis 3.15 on, the God who makes promises uh, keeps his promises. So you have that strong, unconditional sense. And uh, as you work through the Abrahamic, there's certainly a strong, um, unconditional sense. Genesis 15 is very clear. God will keep his promises. He will. He's the one that walks between the pieces. Yet, there's still demand for Abraham to obey. Genesis 17, Genesis 22, because of his obedience, uh, the covenant continues in some sense. Yet, this creates a tension of of how, I mean, Abraham's not a perfect obedient man. Uh, who is going to come and be the obedient one? In the nation of Israel, you have a very strong bilateral sense. In fact, it, it's given uh, on the basis of the Abrahamic, uh, the Abrahamic promises. Israel is that mighty nation that was promised Abraham. Through them, uh, the Messiah will come. And uh, part of the main reason, it's not the sole reason, there's many reasons for the Old Covenant, but the sole reason, one reason, main reason is to uh, to amplify sin, to show uh, what sin is, and uh, and but also through it, it's it has all kinds of typological features, revelatory features. Uh, they begin to see even in God's provision of the priest and the sacrifice and the tabernacle and the temple um, what is needed for the coming of the new covenant and the Davidic covenant. Uh, then is that which administers in some sense the Mosaic. He is the true Israelite. Uh, and ultimately, uh, the Davidic king, uh, the Davidic covenant takes us back 
ultimately to the promise of Genesis 3.15, through the Davidic king, uh, through the servant of the Lord who uh, comes is the one who will bring the promise to pass, is why the prophets then look to the coming of the new covenant. So the new covenant brings with it change. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it goes from type to, to anti-type, from shadow to reality, uh, from promise to, to fulfillment. So that as the anticipation of the new covenant comes, it's built off the structures of the previous covenants and the promises. They unfold, they deepen, they, they um, are developed. Yet uh, with the coming of Christ, uh, he is the one who is the true Israel, the full, true David, the last Adam, who brings all of God's promises to pass. He's the obedient one who then creates a people that's in continuity with the people of old. Yet under those previous covenants, those people... Israel and so on, even Abraham's family was not exactly the same as what constitutes the church. So the church is a regenerate people. It's the new covenant people of God that was anticipated that brings with it change. And thus, you know, there are then applications to ordinances, sacraments, and, and uh, so on. So that's the basic structure of what I'm trying to unfold. A lot of agreement, yet uh, some disagreement in uh, the details and how you work itself out. Cool. Well, thanks everybody so far. This has been really helpful to sort of set the stage and set the table so that we can get into the details of where we can get some clarification. So the first step we want to do that, I want to give everybody some dedicated time to just kind of respond to some of the things that have been said so far before we just open it up to more general discussion uh, where anybody can talk as much as they want. So we'll start with uh, Sam. You can go ahead and lead off. Um, let's shoot for about five-ish minutes or so. Um, if you come in under that, that's fine. So if you're like, I, I'm content, we'll, we'll stop there. But we just want to make sure that we have enough time for the audience questions at the end. So I'll let you go ahead and go, uh, Sam. Thanks, Jordan. Uh, I, I really enjoyed everyone's contributions, uh, saying so much in so short a period of time. Clearly, all of you men have thought about these things very much and are able to condense that. So I, I admire that. Um, one of the things I wanted to focus on is sort of addressing Dr. Beck and Dr. Wellam sort of together. Dr. Wellam was, uh, excuse me, not Dr. Wellam, Dr. Waters. Dr. Waters was mentioning that uh, the movement from, in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the forgiveness is the same. The historical basis for forgiveness has now been accomplished in the New Covenant. And, of course, we, we would affirm that. All, all Christians affirm that a sacrifice at the end of the ages is what cleansed the sins of all saints in all the ages. The writer to the Hebrews, of course, makes the point that if repetitive sacrifices were necessary for cleansing the conscience perfectly, then Jesus would have had to be sacrificed from the beginning of the world. But here at the end of the ages, one sacrifice has cleansed all, all of those sins. So I would affirm the same basis of forgiveness, which becomes a reality in Christ in history, that reaches to all ages. The question then becomes, but how? That's often one of the largest questions that comes to you know a perspective like mine or what's often called 1689 federalism. And so that's where I want to address um, maybe a little bit more specifically some of the things that Dr. Beck said, but it has to do with, with things that Dr. Waters said and the language of administration and typology. And everyone will say, this is all you talk about, Sam. But I, I think it's very important, and I think that it needs to be included in more conversations. And so... I, I'm fine with saying that the grace of the new covenant was administered to the saints under the old covenant, that 
uh, people before Abraham, after Abraham, until Christ, that the grace of the new covenant was administered to them. I have no problem saying that because it's true. The, the grace of Christ's sacrifice reached them. It was given to them again. But how? And this is where typology needs to come into play. Um, Dr. Beck, you mentioned that when an Israelite um, partook of an animal sacrifice by faith, it became a means of grace to him. And I would, I would agree with that. But the, the, that's not the difference. That's not what distinguishes, as I see it, uh, your position from mine or, or perhaps Dr. Waters from my own. The question is, did that animal sacrifice in itself provide a different grace or a different kind of benefit and blessing, which only secondarily by pointing above and beyond itself to Christ and the one who partakes of him by faith, then it becomes a means of grace to the Old Testament believer. And Paul, the writer to the Hebrews, he says that the animal sacrifices purified the flesh. And of course, the Old Testament uh, institution of those sacrifices says over and over, your sins will be forgiven. And so there is a forgiveness. There is a cleansing in the animal sacrifices that is of another nature than that of Christ's sacrifice. And so Christ's grace is only administered to saints who see above and beyond the Old Testament ordinances. And it's this flattening of typology, perhaps unintentionally at times, of saying, if we just say straightforwardly, uh, the grace of Christ reached, reached Old Testament saints through the animal sacrifices, everyone should, should agree, but it's not that simple. There are different kinds of blessings that are coming to those saints based on different things. The animal blood cleanses the flesh. It keeps you in Israel, keeps you in Canaan. The blood of Christ, which is not the animal blood, uh, cleanses the conscience and gives you access to, to the heavenly Canaan. Uh, and so therefore, I can affirm the administration of new covenant grace in all history through things like sacrifices, and yet I would not equate the new covenant with the old or the, the Abrahamic or Mosaic covenant with the covenant of grace or the new covenant because there is a relationship of typology. And this, of course, has a background in John Cameron and the Congregationalists and the particular Baptists and their covenant theology, which I hope will have a more prominent place in secondary literature uh, and general knowledge uh, in, in the future with, with more publications. So I just wanted to affirm or ex try to explain very briefly how I see the grace of Christ or the grace of the new covenant reaching Old Testament believers through typology, acknowledging that first level of typology in the animal sacrifices and other things that give a distinct benefit from the benefit of Christ and his blood and the new covenant. Uh, which is precisely what Dr. Wellen pointed out when he said that the Abrahamic covenant points beyond itself. So also the Mosaic, co Mosaic covenant points beyond itself. And so you do have one united redemptive history, one united plan from God, and even a united people, uh, but they relate to God in different ways. And there's a succession as we move from the old to the new um, as I see it. So I, I wanted to affirm as much as possible with you brothers, but explain where I believe the difference lies. Cool. Thank you. And Sam, I was not laughing at you. It's cool. these goons in the chat who are trying to egg me on. Um, so Dr. Beck, I'll let you go ahead and go from now. Thanks, John. Um, and uh, thanks to all these guys for, again, a really great presentation of their views. I found it all uh, very helpful. I'm, you know, I'm not sure. Five minutes. Let's hope I can do something with that. Um, the, uh, you know, as I think of Dr. Waters and uh, his view, everything he was saying there was just so helpful. I'm in so much agreement. 
Um, I agree it was inaugurated in the garden, you know, the covenant of grace. I I agree with so much of what he was uh, saying there in terms of his, um, the Abrahamic covenant being an an administration of the covenant of grace. I I like that language. I suppose my objections would be fairly predictable and typical along the Baptist Presbyterian route. And I'd probably share that with with Dr. Rennie and Dr. Willemsell. I'll kind of leave that aside because it's a little bit boring now and, and we'll, we'll, let's, let's leave this, uh, let's bring this into a, a more edgy focus. Um, I uh, maybe, maybe just reading through Dr. Waters' material, not so much what he said here, um, uh, probably lead me to have, uh, you know, I think probably we differ on some of the Kleinian stuff um, uh, around the Mosaic Covenant. That would probably be some uh, discussion for some time. But um, uh, just to, to kind of keep within the constraints here, uh, thinking about Dr. Wellam's view. Um, again, just so profoundly helpful. Everything he's saying there is just, you know, hallelujah the whole time. Uh, reminds me a lot of his book, Kingdom Through Covenant, um, where I think, again, you see so much of that, that unity. Um, we're so on the same page in terms of uh, seeing those the, the place of the covenant in Scripture, essentially, and the way that it connects to the various systems. Uh, I think he brings that out so well. Um, I also sympathize with the idea, you know, wanting to try and find some sort of middle ground between these two systems that, you know, we're seeing problems with. Um, and so, uh, again, uh, you know, I appreciate everything you said there. I suppose I just wouldn't see that set against um, the, 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 the traditional um, covenant theology schema so much. I feel uh, that, uh, you know, it's sometimes uh, this might be me reading into it, but I feel that there's an emphasis on the exegetical unfolding of the covenants almost set against the, the traditional schema. And I think that the theological construct works really well with that exegesis and, and doesn't necessarily um, uh, have to be set against it. Um, and then maybe the, the primary point uh, that I feel is worth talking a little bit more about uh, with Dr. Willem, if I had the opportunity, was just exactly, uh, you know, I know he doesn't like the, um, the, the distinction between conditional and unconditional classification uh, in covenants and that sort of thing. Whereas I would, I would definitely see that, that that's uh, an important facet of covenant theology. I think that uh, the covenant of works needs to be seen in quite antithetical ways to a covenant of grace and the, the grace principle. Um, I think uh, there's there's quite a lot of scriptural warrant for that sort of thing. I feel like the penalties of the law. It's not just instruction. There there is a there is a, a legal aspect that has a bite to it that Paul draws from. So uh, if if I feel like if we don't get that right, then uh, all sorts of problems could emerge by way of its systems. Uh, what comes to mind is some theonomy federal vision that's been on my mind recently. So uh, that kind of thing can emerge if you don't have a strong law gospel contrast and know how it fits in covenantly. So uh, that, that would be some thought there. Um, and maybe spending most of the time on Dr. Renihan's view, I, th- I think he's kind of closest to me. So probably that's where I feel like I'm always trying to get in exact alignment with Dr. Renihan. That would be great. Um, so I'm always looking for a way. I remember when he came down to New Zealand uh, many years back, uh, we had a chance to run through some of this. I don't, I don't know if he remembers, but but uh, we, you know, I think the stickler for me then is probably still the stickler for me now, and that's really just uh, you know less so the administration language. Although I really appreciated some of those comments, I think that's very very helpful. Uh, it definitely helps me get a, a better sense of clarity on that point. Um, but maybe the issue of whether we call the Abrahamic covenant 
a covenant of works or whether it is a, a, a gracious covenant or a legal covenant. That's one of the big things that I still struggle with. I struggle with it mostly on the basis of what I see in, in Paul in Galatians 3. Uh, you guys know the story. Uh, he's Paul's arguing against the, the Judaizers and he doesn't want to bring those uh, legal dimensions into, uh, into uh, the, the new covenant as uh, they, were, they were practicing it in Judaism. And so he says, you know, let's, let's, let's think really Jewish. Let's go all the way back to the father of the Jews. Let's go to Abraham. And uh, please note all that God preached the gospel to Abraham, and that's my gospel. And then, you know, three, uh, Galatians 3.17, uh, after that, the law, you know, it came 430 years after that Abrahamic covenant. doesn't annul the covenant previously ratified by God so as to make that promise void. Uh, for, and then he sets up that antithesis again. For if inheritance comes by the law, it's no longer it comes by promise. It feels to me that, uh, you know, that needs to be accounted for in that, you know, Paul is, uh, is saying that uh, you, you have to, you know, it's not just a material contrast there. It's, a, it's an actual formal contrast. There is, there is um, a covenant that was made with Abraham that's being set against uh, the this this issue of the law. Why then the law? Well, it, it was added to subserve these purposes to show the need for for grace, which uh, was uh, being um, set forth in the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant. And um, and so I see I see that there, and uh, you know all sorts of other places. Jeremiah thirty one, where you have the Mosaic covenant compared to the new covenant rather than the Abrahamic covenant. Second uh, Corinthians 3 comes to mind, Romans 3, 4. Uh, we'll get there when we get there. But um, I suppose that's that's some of the thoughts, you know, my initial kickback there, and um, uh, maybe something that prompts future discussion. But I'm at six minutes, so I'll stop right there. Thanks a million. Awesome. Thanks, Michael. Uh, Dr. Waters, I'll let you have uh, some five, six minutes time to just kind of walk through some areas of disagreement or agreement with, with these brothers. Sure. And it, it really will be a walk around knowing we'll have some time for interaction. Um, appreciated Michael's referencing Klein on the Mosaic Covenant. I mean, that's an important issue and, and one that I think would just consume whatever remaining time that we, we have. So we can go there if folks want, but I'm, I'm going to uh, leave that to the side for the moment as, as important as it is. Um, just, just two things that, um, both Drs. Renahan and, and Wellam raised each that I thought I would um, reflect on and, and propose for further discussion. Um, Sam mentioned the his affirmation that, that grace of the new covenant was administered to saints prior. Uh, he instanced the example of the animal sacrifices. And I fully affirm the point that he was making. There were plenty of Israelites who, whatever outward or temporal benefit they may have received, even connected with the covenant, uh, if they weren't acting faith, they didn't receive Christ and the promises and benefits of the new covenant, covenant of grace, however one were to style it. So I affirm that distinction. I would extend that, and this is perhaps carrying this into a somewhat different point, but it is related. I think the same dynamic holds under the new covenant. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is going to liken uh, the church in Corinth, the new covenant church, to the church in the wilderness, referencing the covenantally provided benefits 
spiritual food, spiritual drink, being baptized into Moses, I think with a clear view to likening the church in Corinth in similar circumstances and a warning uh, not to misuse the Lord's Supper lest they experience the same faith that Israel in the wilderness did. So I see a very strong line of continuity across the covenants on that point. And I think it does press the uh, question or issue of apostasy under the new covenant. But that is something Paul uh, entertains as a possibility for those who are members in the new covenant community. And this this ties into an observation um, that was prompted by a comment of, of Dr. Wellam um, uh, that the, the people of God are in, in continuity. The people of God under the new covenant are in continuity with the old, yet they're not the same as the church um, in that the church is, is a regenerate people. Um, now, this is obviously raising... Uh, a known point of difference between Presbyterians and Baptists. I'll just grab the third rail on this one and would want to affirm a a full identity, recognizing there are differences in form as we go from old to new and would see the people of God, the composition of the people of God as uh, the same as we see under the old covenant, namely that a, a person is a member of the covenant community by virtue of their, uh, what we would call today, profession of faith, and that the children of at least one covenant member are members by birthright, by virtue of that relationship to their covenant parent. I don't think that there's disagreement that this is what was actually in place, say, under the Abrahamic covenant, and moving forward into the Mosaic Covenant, that the disagreement concerns whether this extends to the new. And I'd I'd see that as um, a principle that would be uh, taught under the new covenant as well. And I do think these two questions uh, are related to one another. How one sees the composition of the covenant community will go some distance to how one accounts for and explains the phenomenon of apostasy with respect to the covenant community. That may be a good point for us to discuss. I suspect in practice, theologically and practically, we're very close together. I suspect where differences may emerge is in how we would explain and account for these things in terms of our uh, underlying covenant theology. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Dr. Waters. Now, Dr. Wellam, I'll let you uh, close this and this portion of sort of being able to engage on your own before we let everybody kind of just go back and forth in a conversation. And as a reminder, you are muted, so you'll need to unmute yourself. I apologize. Um, yeah, I apologize. My screen screen froze up. Sorry about that. Um, all right, yeah, I'm on. So, all right. Very good. Uh, great to interact on, on some of these, these points. Just a couple of thoughts uh, from the overall presentations. One of the issues that we uh, we have to wrestle with is uh, really moving from exegesis to uh, to theological formulation, and the the whole discussion of of the covenant of grace, which again I, I do not reject. People have have, have claimed that I, I do. I, I I I don't reject it. I I want to re, I want to define it carefully, and I want to make sure that it's functioning. 
according to Scripture. So uh, if, if we mean the one plan of God across uh, the covenants and so on, there's no problem ultimately centered in the new covenant. Yet the, the very construct of, of, of the covenant of grace, um, the, problem, the problem with it, and I, I think particularly with, uh, even, even though this is not the intent with the Presbyterian view, the covenant, classic covenant view, um, it, to flatten things out is that once we have the the covenant of grace functioning across all the the redemptive covenants or everything since Genesis 3:15, and then we have the substance administrative distinction, then we make uh, these covenants. Uh, yes, they're similar. Um, Sam was saying this before in terms of uh, the the promises and uh, the effects and so on. Yet uh, we tend to make them very, very similar, and I think this is where Guy and, and Presbyterians and Baptists will disagree on the nature of the covenant people from from old uh, to new. So that's still an issue that has to be really, really thought through, is that the Bible presents uh, Adam, clearly um, um, under a stable covenant of works, uh, the, the fall into sin, Genesis 3.15, the promise of redemption, uh, the unfolding of that promise all the way through the biblical covenants and letting each of those biblical covenants um, uh, unfold that promise. Yet we have to be very, very careful that we don't just put all these Old Testament covenants then under this larger category of the covenant of grace, and then we just sort of move back and forth between, well, Israel is like this, and then the church is like this. Uh, that's going to be a major point of, of, of contention. And that's where it really shows up practically, because uh, if we say under the Abrahamic covenant, uh, you know, you come into that covenant and even the old covenant by faith and then you have your child uh, and so on. Um, there, there's truth in that. But, but the, the Abrahamic covenant by its very nature um, was uh, tied to Abraham and his, his family. And then eventually out of that comes Ishmael and the sons of Keturah, Isaac. You then have the nation of Israel. You have biological children. You have the genealogical principle. Yet the important point with the, the Old Testament covenants is that they are prophetically leading to, they're revealing, they're anticipating what is to come in the future tied to ultimately the, the culmination of the, of the new covenant. So that the promise of redemption is the same. The ground of salvation is the same. It's found in Christ all the way from that seed promise. Abraham believes God and uh, it's credit in righteousness. But I think as Sam was also pointing out and tied to the Abrahamic and also to uh, the old covenant that um, in, in some sense uh, the ground isn't there. I mean, it's there in Christ, but it, it, it anticipates the future, right? You could offer your sacrifices all you wanted of the old covenant and they ultimately uh, by themselves can't redeem. They anticipate that which is to come. They anticipate the coming uh, that is found in Christ. So that's why it's so important to make sure that we let the unfolding of the plan of God, the one plan of God, uh, unpack itself through the covenants and let each of the covenants contribute to how they ultimately reveal and anticipate and bring to culmination uh, the new covenant. That's the revelatory prophetic nature. So that's why when you get to the prophets that are all right post-Davidic, so the, all of the covenants from Genesis 3.15, all that Adam did, all the Genesis 3.15 promise, the Abrahamic, the old, the Davidic, uh, as you get to the prophets post-Davidic, they're anticipating the dawning of a new covenant, the coming ultimately of the seed, the coming of the true Israel, the last Adam, Christ, who will bring all of these things to pass, and he will constitute a people that uh, I, I want to, you know, have a discussion about what Jeremiah 31 is talking about and, and the other old, uh, the new covenant passages in the Old Testament. 
people that know God. That wasn't true of Israel and every single person, right? Uh, Paul makes that very clear, not all Israel's Israel. Uh, people that have the full forgiveness of sins, and that, of course, is set in the context of the Old Testament sacrificial system, where, um, you know, there was a, you know, if you came by faith and believed the promises of God and offered those sacrifices, yes, uh, they experienced justification, Abraham, David, and so on, uh, yet it had to look forward. But under the new covenant, there is the full justification. There is uh, the, the giving of the Spirit. This cannot be applied to a mixed community the same way. And, and the reason why we are saying that is because these Old Testament covenants reveal and point forward to the coming of the new covenant, and there is difference when we come to the New Covenant. So those are issues to talk about. Uh, Michael mentioned um, the unconditional conditional. Uh, let me assure you, Michael, I'm not a theonomist and I'm not uh, uh, moving in the direction of the federal vision. Uh, the, uh, what I'm saying there is I hold to a law gospel contrast as strong as anyone. Uh, and, and, uh, and for people to deny that, don't understand my position. What I'm saying is you have to be very, very careful driving the law gospel contrast from the unconditional, conditional nature of the covenants. That that so there's a, there's a ground to law gospel, ultimately tied to God's creation of us as His creatures that demands perfect obedience. Grace is found in God alone saves. Uh, God alone initiates, and He saved ultimately alone in His Son. Um, yet um, uh, we have to be very careful that the covenants aren't defining all of that. And that's the way we're dividing things up. And so the same point would go with the tripartite division of the Old Testament law. You can divide up the tripartite division. It's a very handy division. Uh, the question then becomes, is that the way that uh, we draw, you know, New Testament ethics and, and draw com uh, application by simply appealing to that? Or do we need more than that? that? That's the point that I make. And so a similar point when we come to unconditional conditional. Awesome. Thanks, Dr. Wellam. So now we'll go ahead, transition, where everybody can sort of chat for a little bit. Let's shoot for, we'll plan for 20 minutes so we can leave a half hour for listener questions because I've got like 50 of them from you guys. And uh, I think there's some good ones in here that will help uh, have a good discussion. So I don't know who wants to kick us off. Um, Mike, you, you look excited. I'll, so I'll kick ahead. us off. Yeah, I'm, I'm just always full of stuff to talk about. So anyone um, anyone that runs dry, just send them send my way. Um, you know, just thinking on that difference there between law and gospel, there might be a good thing to, you know, sort of merge into to some comments earlier. Um, you know, just very relieved. There's no theonomy in the room. That's good. Uh, we'll leave that for another day, though. But uh, I, I think that um, one of the things that has become increasingly important to me is, you know, seeing how as you move from Luther and law gospel contrast at, at a more timeless level, uh, just these principles that run right throughout the scripture and almost like a hermeneutic with which he approaches the scripture to reform theology and uh, and the development of covenant theology. What I see there is a is really forming a, a covenantal redemptive historical basis for law and gospel. And and the wrestle there has been, well, you know, how do we come up with this law gospel antithesis as we approach uh, scripture. So I've really appreciated those attempts to to see uh, law gospel founded in um, in the covenant of works and covenant of grace antithesis. So uh, th th I suppose that was uh, a little bit more of what I'm getting at. I don't think that that uh, you know if you take that away, you automatically go into theonomy or federal vision or anything like that. But it's just I've seen uh, I feel anyway that that becomes quite an important way of thinking to safeguard 
law and gospel as a contrast rather than just leaving it hanging out there uh, in terms of these timeless principles. Uh, but maybe what I could do is just uh, use the opportunity to direct this to um, Dr. Renian. Um, just thinking, uh, you know, just very appreciative again of, of your earlier comments, thinking about uh, our agreement really on, on, and I would agree with what you were saying in terms of um, the administration uh, piece there and how grace uh, it, yeah, it sounds like we're exactly on the same page. I suppose uh, thinking about this uh, antithesis that comes by way of these covenants and referring again to uh, Galatians 3.7 and thinking about um, the way that Paul seems to be setting something up there as he compares Abraham to Moses. Um, I was just wondering what your thoughts were. You know, as I look at, at Abraham, it seems very obvious to me um, that as you compare, let's say, uh, with Sinai and the people, you know, invoking upon themselves this this curse and saying, you know, we will do it, <laughs> bring it all on, let the blood be upon us, and and so forth. You see, quite a striking example of a hey, let's get into this and we'll do our part uh, thing, versus uh, in Abraham, where you know there, I mean, he's just basically sleeping, you know, and God is 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 doing it all, invoking the curse upon himself even, and and uh, and really saying, well, this is going to happen. So as I think about those two processes of covenant ratification, um, you know, even there, I, I would, it's not, it's not shocking to me that Paul would say, well, you know, uh, the, the, the covenant that came 430 years later is not going to annul that thing that happened there, which was clearly all, you know, of grace. So um, while I appreciate there's an organic connection between the Abrahamic covenant as it sets things up for the Mosaic Covenant. Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that, and how you how you get past that in, in seeing the the Abrahamic Covenant as a if effectively the covenant of well uh, the old covenant and a works a works covenant. Thanks. You went right for the throat, Michael. <laughs> no, I'm teasing you, brother. It is it's a very important question, so it's not in any way uh, something to be avoided. It needs to be answered. Um, <clears throat> T.D. Gordon published a book, Law, Promise, and Faith, um, which, to be clear, I haven't actually read it myself yet. Um, but what I've read about it uh, has been, uh, I've been very appreciative of um, T.D. Gordon's arguments that in Galatians, Paul is is not so much making an ordo salutis argument as he is making a historia salutis argument. So he's not necessarily responding to people trying to justify themselves through the works of the law, but people who think that Christians today uh, need to obey Moses uh, and need to live according to the Mosaic Covenant uh, in order to, uh, that that's the way that we're supposed to live. And Paul is making a historical argument, as I would say he does in Hebrews, you don't have to think Paul wrote Hebrews, but as I would say he does in Hebrews, about if you go back to Moses, you're saying the reality, the perfection has not come. Okay, so it how you interpret Galatians 3, of course, is largely dependent on what you think Paul is responding to in the book of Galatians. And I believe he's largely making a historia salutis argument. And I believe that the appeal to Abraham, uh, Paul is very selective about what he says. Uh, he singles out the promise of the descendant who blesses. The descendant who blesses the nations is what uh, Paul is particularly focused upon. He doesn't talk about the Abrahamic covenant's promise about numerous offspring to fill the land of Canaan. He doesn't talk about um, those features of the Abrahamic covenant. He narrows his focus down to the promise of the one who will bless the nations. 
to say if God from the beginning, uh, before the law, said that there is a blessing coming from us, from the Jews, for the whole world, uh, then why would you think that the Mosaic Covenant was designed that was the end in itself, which excluded Gentiles? It can't be the end in itself. It has to be preparatory. God made a promise before that he would bless the nations through us, through the Jews. So his later covenant that he made is not going to disrupt this or go contrary to it. It's a preparatory stage. It's subservient, as, as you would agree, and, and so many of us would, would see it. Uh, and so I see Paul is narrowly focusing in on the promise that one of Abraham's offspring will bless the nations, uh, and that that redemptive historical trajectory of the Abrahamic covenant is carried forward by the Mosaic covenant, not opposed by it. And of course, this all comes to reality, and Paul is saying, we're in the reality, don't go back. Uh, it's here. What Abraham promised, what Moses prepared us for, it has arrived, don't, don't return. And so if we say, but, but doesn't Paul argue that the promise is received by faith, whereas Moses says, keep the law for righteousness. There seems to be more than just Historia Salutis. And that's where I think, again, Paul's um, selectiveness is important, because if we appeal to Genesis 15 and the sort of uh, unilateral promise of God where Abraham is sleeping, uh, Genesis 17 follows right after it. But as for you, you and your offspring, it's the same language as Genesis 2 in, in the garden, but as for you, you, you shall uh, keep my law, or Many other covenant formulas work that way, but as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you. You shall shamar it. That's the, the same word, one of the same words used with, with, excuse me, Adam in the garden. Anyway, Genesis 17 shows that the way the Abrahamic covenant functions for the covenant servant is by keeping and maintaining a certain outward holiness that God has granted to Abraham and his children. You must accept circumcision. In other words, circumcision is not mosaic, it's Abrahamic. It doesn't start at 430 years later, it starts with Abraham. And you, you can't therefore divorce uh, Abraham and Moses, and I know you see them as organically connected. So uh, Paul is saying that Abraham understood the larger trajectory of his covenant, and he was looking forward to that, and he was trusting in that, and that's always been the purpose of Israel. And so it's misunderstanding Israel and its redemptive historical purpose to, to perpetuate the old covenant or to insist on Gentile excluding practices uh, when the God promised from Genesis 12 that the nations would be blessed freely uh, through Abraham and through particularly one of his offspring. So I know that there's a lot of many specific exegetical questions that go into proving that. You know, we're more asserting than arguing things to a degree, but that's how I see Paul arguing, is, is selectively, narrowly focusing in on the redemptive historical trajectory of Abraham's covenant and Abraham's response to it by faith, uh, not looking at the entirety of the Abrahamic covenant, which does include covenant faithfulness on the part of the servant and will exclude you. Genesis 17 not only says he will be cut off, it says he has broken the covenant. Uh, and so we have to include Genesis 17 in our understanding of the Abrahamic covenant. I don't know if you can hear the trash truck booming outside. I hope not. Um, anyway, uh, that made me lose my train of thought. He's making a redemptive historical argument, and he's selectively narrowly focusing in on the promise of Christ who will bless the nations, and, and that is what he's uh, arguing about. I guess about. we can give uh, Dr. Waters a chance to 
to jump in if you want to reply specifically to what Dr. Renahan said or if you want to move things in a different um, direction. No, sure. I think um, I, I don't hear substantial disagreement between Michael and Sam. Um, and I, I would resonate with, with what Sam has said that uh, Paul is, is not giving us a compend of covenant theology. He's responding to a very specific situation that's arisen in his churches in Galatia, particularly teachers who are claiming that circumcision as a gateway to law observance is the pathway to Abrahamic blessing. And that's what Paul is expressly setting out to deny. So I think that frames his a depiction of the Abrahamic covenant, which he styles promise, the Mosaic covenant, which he styles law, and new covenant, which he styles, um, well, uh, faith, law, promise. So um, I don't see the Abrahamic covenant then as exclusive of obligation, just as I wouldn't see the Mosaic covenant as not founded on Abrahamic promise. I just think that Paul's particular rhetorical concerns in Galatians are going to lend uh, emphasis to one side or the other of the covenant to, to respond to this pattern of teaching that's, that's arisen in the churches. And, and that's where bringing in other portions of the New Testament, I think, becomes helpful. Um, and, <clears throat> but, you know, that said, you do see across the New Testament, there is a certain pattern within first century Judaism of misconstruing the law that the New Testament writers are very clear that was never the law's intent. That's a misreading of the law. But all the same, I think that's going to account for, in many respects, the overall cast of teaching about the Mosaic Covenant and the underlying law. It, those particular controversies that were in the air, not only outside the church, but also within the church. So, yeah, I take that to be a wholesome point. Um, we, we, we're, we're all committed to being exegetical, and statements have to be read in the context of the particular letter and the particular circumstances that, that give rise to it. Um, but again, I, I don't hear Michael differing in substance with that point. I just, um, I, I think we may be coming at this from, from on this question in particular from, from different angles. I've. Uh, otherwise, I've got a question. Go ahead. Anybody feel free to jump in? Yeah, I. I just wanted to say briefly that uh, one thing I meant to say earlier uh, to, to Michael, to Doctor Beck, is you mentioned aligning with the 1689, and I, I wanted to be clear and affirm that I believe that the way you've expressed covenant theology is just as compatible and allowable and permissible within the 1689 uh, framework as as what I would usually call 1689 federalism. And I, I've tried to say that loudly in other places, uh, but I want to say it again, uh, that if, if we were dealing, we're not dealing with uh, sort of a, a full subscription context right now, but even if we were, I would not view the, the, um, the views that you have proposed as outside of the bounds of the 1689 confession. So I just wanted to say that to be, to be clear. And then the other thing is, you know, I know we're not just glad handing, we're not just being nice to each other. There really is a lot of agreement between many of the views that are being um, discussed uh, between the four of us and, and between many other people. 
And I just wanted to make the comment that 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 fact, that acknowledgement of considerable agreement has made me so frustrated and really disgusted with the way that covenant theology is constantly a war on the internet. Um, yes, there are differences, and yes, those differences are important, but I hope that this can be an example of stating clear disagreement and even saying, I, I think that's wrong, I don't think that's true, I don't think that's accurate, uh, without vilifying and demonizing one another. Um, so, I just wanted to express my appreciation. Um, that doesn't mean that we hold back from asking real questions and, and challenging one another, but I, I appreciate this opportunity to, to, to dialogue and to discuss with, with good brothers in Christ about yeah, important helpful. issues. Awesome. Thanks for that, Sam. I, uh, let me just say, it's, uh, yeah, that's, I really appreciate uh, and agree with you on that. Also, maybe just to mention, you know, the, 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 the whole idea of there being one covenant theology <laughs> that rules them all. Uh, I've always found that to be something of an elusive concept. I mean, I don't know, you just need to read a little bit of church history to get rid of that idea. I mean, sure, there've been these prominent systems, but my goodness, it's it's it feels like, you know, as as many people as you read is as many covenant theologies as you get. And uh you you have to be careful about going, well, yeah, we got this uh, monopoly. Now, you know, I don't I don't want to take off the table that you have to keep on striving to get more and more biblical and so forth. But, um, but yeah, just, you know, when anyone ever opens up with, Hey, this is the, you know, I found the, you know, this is uh, the Lord of the Rings. This is the, the one ring to rule them all. Uh, you know, I always, uh, take a breath and go, here, here we go. Oh boy. So let me leave it at that for now. Maybe, uh, I want to ask a question. Oh, Dr. Wellam, you can go ahead. Um, though you're on mute, so you'll need to unmute yourself. Question, or do you want me to, uh, can I ask something or? I'm just, I'm just wondering, I mean, um, yeah, go ahead. maybe we'll do this in, in further discussion. I'm just in, in thinking of um, how the covenants work across redemptive history, uh, particularly um, uh, where I'm departing a bit from the, uh, the notion of the covenant of grace as an overarching covenant that encompasses, um, we'll just say, everything from Abrahamic to, to new covenant. Um, in seeing that we have the progressive unfolding of, of the promise through the covenants uh, that leads to the new covenant, that to me uh, makes sense then of, of why the prophets in the Old Testament um, write uh, post-Davidic. They, they, uh, they anticipate the coming of, of Christ in the future, so all the messianic promises, the pouring out of the Spirit, uh, the dawning of the new age, the dawning of inauguration of the new creation, even though obviously the new heavens and new earth isn't here in its fullness. It is first in Christ. It is in us as individual believers, and it is in us as, as the church. So that when you look at um, all of the, the new covenant passages, eternal covenant, or various ways that it's described in the prophets, uh, particularly just say, we'll just pick on Jeremiah 31, it anticipates, uh, it seems to me, and I'd like to hear um, maybe Guy respond to this, is uh, it, it seems to speak of um, an, a transformed people. It seems to speak of the law written on the heart. Now, that's not to say that Old Testament saints, but Old Testament saints aren't the same as the entire covenant community. Uh, Old Testament saints, you have an Israel within an Israel. You have the elect within. And of course, even the Westminster Confession of Faith makes Ultimately, the the, uh, the covenant of redemption, the plan of plan of salvation with the elect, and not with uh, the non-elect or with the entire covenant 
communities such as uh, Ahab's and and uh, others who are unbelievers in, in Israel. So that when you have the Jeremiah 31 promise of a, of a transformed people, the the, birth, the, the, the circumcision of heart, uh, uh, you know, again, the scope massively changes. Uh, the nature of that community massively changes. And then when you have the New Testament teaching of the church as the new creation, as, uh, uh, as united to Christ. Now, obviously, there's union with Christ in the sense of true Old Testament saints in the old, but in the full new covenant uh, sense of that. I mean, how do you make sense then of um, just simply the church being a mixed community? There may be expansion, there may be extension, but in the end, you have an unbeliever-believer community that is constituted as the church. So uh, reflect on that maybe just a bit. Good. Our moderators, may I? May You're totally I welcome to. You can jump in whenever you want. <clears throat> Good. Good. No. And <clears throat> I'm no. I'm and I'm grateful for your bringing that up. And we we've affirmed our bonami and and uh, in that framework we can we can take up these real differences. Um, yeah, I think that's that's uh, just the the right question to be asking. And I understand. Uh, why my Baptist brothers come to the conclusions they do from Jeremiah 31. I understand the arguments that are being made from the text and its carryover uh, on the pages of the New Testament. Um, I would disagree, and a couple of things just by way of explanation as, as to why I would not affirm a, a covenant community under the new covenant that is regenerate by definition. Um, one is, I think, looking back at the specific promises uh, that are articulated, Jeremiah 31, 32, 33, but particularly 31, uh, I, none of those is uh, in itself unique to the new covenant. I think we can parallel even the promise that the law of God is engraven or written in the hearts, you'll find testified in Psalm 40. And so that it is, it is an experience of which an old covenant saint was capable. And so I think uh, when we're looking at old new differences with respect to promise, and I think this carries over into the covenant community, we're not looking at something that's at the end of the day absolute, but it's going to be relative. Now, I, I appreciated what Steve said, and I, and I fully affirm when, when we're in the Old Covenant, we are dealing with an Israel within the Israel. God has his elect, and so we're, we're not saying that God's covenant promises, so far as they administered uh, redemption in Christ, were uh, universal. And if you have the good fortune of being born in Israel, you were saved. If not, too bad for you. That's, that's not how that worked. Um, but I think as we come into the new covenant, what we're witnessing is, is a profound extension, uh, the wideness of God's mercies, but also the depth, um, hence the emphasis on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, particularly in Luke-Acts. Uh, the Spirit was, was at work. He was at work redemptively and savingly, but he is at work in unparalleled fullness under the new covenant. So, so both in terms of breadth and in terms of depth, that's where I would articulate the old new difference fundamentally. I think when we look at the composition of the covenant people, a few observations. One, 
is that I see, see hints, more than hints, I see indications that children of uh, covenant members were not put out of the covenant community, but remain part of it. So Paul addresses children uh, to the in his epistle to the Ephesians as members of the congregation. Um, similarly, Paul can affirm, and I know there's a lot of exegetical questions about this statement, 1 Corinthians 7.14, he pronounces uh, the child of at least one a believer to be holy. And <clears throat> the the principle in Acts 2, uh, the promise is for you, your children, and all who are afar off. Now, again, I don't take that to be a pledge that the children of believers are or will be saved, simply that they are encompassed within the bounds of the covenant community. And I, I would want to press a, a distinction that I think it's critical to understanding a membership in the covenant community. I think this applies old and new, and that would be that there is a sense in which one is a member of the covenant community outwardly, uh, and then there's a sense in which one is a member of the covenant community both outwardly and inwardly. And there we're talking about someone who's elect, regenerate, repentant, and believing in Christ. And where that distinction, I think, surfaces in the New Testament is that in passages like Hebrews chapter 6 and with them chapter 10, the, the warning passages, other places, 1 Corinthians 10, I mentioned a little earlier, the New Testament anticipates that professing members, members of the covenant community, uh, may and will apostatize. And I think to account for, for apostasy uh, without denying the, the doctrines of grace that we all affirm, um, one is going to have to articulate a distinction like that. And so uh, that is indication that um, we're, we're not to understand the covenant community in strictly regenerate terms. I think accounting for uh, apostasy and with it hypocrisy does prompt us to be thinking about the covenant community in like terms as the Old Testament. Last thing, I don't want to consume more time. Uh, the, um, the statement, they will all know me from the greatest to the least, and I know Dr. Wellam is going to disagree with what I say because I've read his book. Uh, from the greatest to the least is a phrase that surfaces throughout Jeremiah. Uh, I take to refer to all types or kinds, classes of persons, not every person individually, numerically. And so I think exegetically, um, the view I've articulated comes out of Jeremiah 31 nicely and, and does fit what we're seeing in the New Testament, namely continuity and composition of the covenant people. All right. Well, I suppose now we can transition to um, audience questions for those last 20 minutes or so. Um, I'll begin with uh, a question from the chat, and this was directed to Doctors Beck and Renahan, so we'll, we'll have them try to answer first. But if anybody else wants to jump in after that, feel free. Um, do Beck and Renahan maintain that all Old Testament saints were indwelt by the Holy Spirit and regenerate? And then I suppose uh, my follow-up to that would be, um, if the answer to that is yes, then um, what would be the difference, if there is any, um, in that indwelling and what is going on post-Pentecost? And we can start with uh, you, Dr. Renahan. Yeah. 
Uh, I would affirm both regeneration and indwelling in the Old Testament. Um, the reality of salvation in the Old Testament was the same. However, the experience was different in the sense, at least, of knowledge. Uh, they didn't, did not have the same extent and, and clarity of knowledge as we do. Uh, they believed in what was to come. They believed in what had been promised. They believed in a sacrifice not yet offered. And yet the benefits that they received from that sacrifice were the same as ours. Uh, one one quick comment, though. I do also affirm a, a progression in the experience of Old Testament saints into the new. And what I have in mind in particular uh, is without in any way trying to completely derail this this conversation, I believe that all the dead descended to Sheol uh, prior to Christ's resurrection, and that believers were in Abraham's bosom, comforted, uh, not punished, but sep- separated from the wicked and awaiting Christ's descent and resurrection and ascension. And their their place in Abraham's bosom, it is a privation. It's a, it's a, it's a not yet entering into the, the heavenly place that Jesus has not yet opened. And so now... Uh, not without us, Paul says in, in Hebrews, would they enter? They would enter with us. Jesus has opened the way for everyone at the same time. And so they had a different experience. They were in Abraham's bosom, comforted, that's what it says of Lazarus, but not yet in the heavenly glory. Whereas we and, and they, from Christ's resurrection onward, experienced the, the fullness of that celestial inheritance, though not yet bodily. So I want to affirm regeneration and indwelling in the Old Testament, but I also do affirm a progression at least of knowledge and clarity as well as of post-mortem experience of the intermediate state in the Old Covenant and the New. Oh, wow. That's a, you have successfully derailed me on that coming up. I'm completely, uh, yeah, I'm absorbed by that. And I want to think more about that. But coming back to the original uh, uh, question, I suppose what I would say is similar to Sam, I I would affirm both um, regeneration indwelling in the same way. I think of the whole change and the progression uh, more in terms of the uh, less in terms of the auto salutis and more in terms of the historia. So uh, as we move forward, they have the same experience, but it ties into what uh, Dr. Waters and Dr. Willem were saying a little bit earlier regarding Jeremiah. In that year, you have this prophecy about this thing that's going to come. It's going to happen. Uh, it's experienced already in part in uh, amongst Israel in, in what we might call the, the remnants or the, uh, the elect within Israel. Um, and yet what is being prophesied there is is a day that the, the, the very covenant community is going to be defined by this experience. So not, not just some within, but, but the whole community, not denying that they could be unregenerate within the visible church and all sorts of things. But, it, you know, this is the basic thrust of the prophecy. So by the time you get to Pentecost, I mean, yes, everything's changing in terms of the Historia Salutis. Now the whole administrative deal is different. And, um, and so I suppose this does tie into why I'm a Baptist. Uh, I'm revealing my cards here. But, but I do feel that that is, that is the big shift right there in terms of the Historia Salutis rather than the order. Now, you know, whether there could be an increased experience or not, I don't know. I find those questions kind of irritating because I can't really get to, to ever answer them properly. Um, but, but I feel that that is the concrete thing that we do have to work with at that point. So hopefully that helps. Is it, is it all right to jump in on this one? I mean, this is this is a real test case for uh, how one understands the continuity discontinuity. Um, I myself would struggle with uh, having the full 
new covenant sense of indwelling in, in the Old Testament. Certainly regeneration. Um, you, you know, for dead in our sins, uh, God must make us alive. That, that occurred with Old Testament saints, not the entire covenant community. But, uh, you know, the whole dwelling language is, is tricky, right? I mean, in terms of God's presence dwelling, the unique operations of the Spirit that become more clear as you work through uh, the Scripture. So you can still have the operation of the Spirit in the Old Testament, yet the, the full reality of that in terms of Christ's new covenant work. But, you know, you think of the presence of God in terms of tabernacle, temple, land, uh, and then you can read Hebrews. To me... Um, and there's something more of, of tied to the work of the Spirit. And, of course, the promise of the New Covenant age, Galatians 3 and so on, is that they have the Spirit, uh, which is what distinguishes uh, the old from the new, uh, so that uh, we now have the full indwelling in a greater way. Um, same salvation, but certainly a greater experience and full access. So I would, uh, I would uh, even appeal to Michael Horton at this point, who... Uh, from the covenantal end of things, uh, would argue, uh, in terms of redemptive history and so on, for the indwelling and, and tied to the coming of Christ. But that's just, a, it's a crucial test case. Uh, it's one of those issues that really separate how you understand the covenants and uh, how they unfold and how they're... Fulfilled. Dr. Waters, I don't know if you have anything additional to add to this question or not, but I'll give you the chance. No, I think, you know, the, the critical thing, <clears throat> and, and what I'm hearing all parties affirm is that the grace of Christ was operative prior to his death and resurrection. And um, not to, to minimize or discount the, the importance of this question or, or, or the disagreements that, that have been voiced, but I think we don't want to lose sight of that um, all-important question, which we're all unanimously affirming. Cool. So one of the questions that was in the chat that I thought I'd bring up to the front, just because it made its appearance a little bit in earlier discussion is about the warning or apostasy passages. So you think of places like Hebrews six, um, is there a sense in which those outside, those who are not regenerate and yet say they're at your church, they're, they're, you know, outwardly a member, have they participated in the new covenant in any sort of ways, even if they aren't members of that covenant? So what exactly is the relationship that's going on there for these people who aren't regenerate and yet are somehow in this Hebrews 6 sort of situation where they've tasted of these things and yet they will not experience uh, eternal life. So <clears throat> I'm going to quote Thomas Goodwin, uh, who said this. He said, Objection. It may be objected that, objected that they are said to be sanctified through Christ's blood, Hebrews 10. I answer first, in that sense, as elsewhere, they are said to believe and Judas to repent. All graces have a counterfeit called by their name, as in herbs and stones, and as the picture of the king is called the king. So he's pointing out there is a reality, but it's a real falsehood. Uh, they really do something. They really commit a crime. They, they really do, but hypocrisy, it's real, but it's wrong. And so these people, they have come to have a knowledge. There are even common operations of the Spirit, as our confessions mention. Uh, and so outwardly, yes, they have been worked on. Outwardly, yes, they have received revelation that they are accountable for. They've had the benefits and blessings of being within the covenant community or the, or the church. And yet inwardly, there has been no, no reality, no, no work in them. And what was regarded as sanctification, what was regarded as repentance, what was regarded as belief is then exposed as counterfeit. Uh, and church discipline will expose this 
and, and show what we believed was true was actually false. And it really happened. The question is not reality. The question is, was it true or was it false? I think that's a better way of discussing this because as previously Dr. Waters mentioned, there is uh, an external internal di- distinction to be made of not all who outwardly receive the sacraments uh, inwardly enjoy their benefits. Now, that's a separate question from are the Old and New Covenants the same thing, etc. Et and so I would affirm that not all who outwardly receive uh, the supper and or baptism and the supper inwardly necessarily receive the grace that they signify. Um, and those who prove themselves counterfeit prove themselves counterfeit. Uh, it was not what it what it seemed to be. Yeah, on these apostasy passages, I mean, this is another crucial uh, test case between, um, you know, one's understanding of the covenants. Uh, so, so I mean, the way that uh, Guy has has laid out the apostasy passages, they make perfect sense um, if if his entire viewpoint is correct, right? I mean, it's one of the strongest arguments, uh, I think, for a mixed nature of the church uh, in the New Covenant. Now, of course, that that assumes that uh, his uh, entire understanding of the covenants and so on and so on is is correct, and that's where I would dispute it. So you have to put other, you know, you have to find, you have to evaluate it on its own merit, the same way with, you know, Acts 2 passages, bringing in children, whether that is uh, is justification for the continuation of infant baptism is, is another issue. Uh, you have to eventually you have to assume the system uh, in order. It, it may buttress it, but but it may not be the the definitive proof of it either. So uh, the apostasy passages I think are far easier handled. I mean, if you're going to go the covenantal direction that guy goes, uh, then that makes sense. Uh, I think also you you simply have to say that uh, there is a big difference between yes, there is invisible visible. So, uh, Jordan, in your article, you criticize me for denying invisible, visible church. I don't. Uh, I want to define uh, the terms, what they mean, uh, in terms of a covenantal viewpoint versus a Baptist viewpoint. I do believe in a visible church uh, is one of in, is vis, invisible, but the visible church ultimately is one who professes faith. Now, there can be false profession. That's quite different than the visible Israel, uh, who were brought in, constituted by circumcision. They weren't professing anything other than their parents. And uh, they were constituted as covenant members. Uh, that's different, right, in terms of the, the new covenant. And uh, the church in, in Hebrews, the author is addressing the church as professing believers, right? They've been Christians for a while. They've, they've suffered persecution. It's a phenomenal. He's, he's addressing them. Yet they function as warnings. And, uh, and I think Tom Schreiner and, and Ardell Kennedy in their book on, on the warning passages are, are, are just as viable interpretation as the covenantal view to see them as, as sovereign means to bring about ends. And, and if someone doesn't adhere to the warnings, they have a false profession. But they came into the church professing faith. Uh, that's different than the structures of, of, um, of covenant theology, or at least Presbyterian thought at that point. Does anybody else want to jump in on that? Or if not, I will ask another question. Um, I was just going to quickly say, um, you know, just I, I suppose I have a similar position to uh, to Sam's and and uh, Dr. Willems. Um, you know, I suppose the the I agree also that this is uh, probably the strongest case for a mixed church. If you look at the apostasy passages, it's where I've wrestled the most. But um, just holding sort of a standard position, you know, if they if they've left us, they weren't ever uh, of us originally, and and sort of um, that there can be a visible. 
um, mixed reality uh, because they're going to be false professions of faith and so forth. Um, just allowing those things to stand for a second. I found that as I worked, I, I don't think we'll probably need more time to do this in, in detail, and maybe this is a, a whole different episode. But but um, as you work through Hebrews, as you work through the context, and uh, I've, I've found, I'm actually preaching through Hebrews now, and I've, I've found that you know it's not quite as scary as it seems to be when you get there, if you're seeing the argument as a whole and uh, making reference uh, to the things the author is making reference to. So, you know, there he is talking about Israel, about to enter into the promised land, almost tasting of the heavenly fruit, uh, thinking about the Sabbath land, and then he's sort of applying that to the church. And, and you can you, you start to get a sense, okay, well, he's not, if you, if you push everything he's saying into a theological grid, uh, you, you could make him say a lot of different things. But, but if you just let his words stand, I feel like they don't quite say as much as the dreaded apostasy passages, you know, are sometimes made to say. So, um, you know, I just want to put that out there. But again, to go into any more specifics would require too much time. All right. So uh, one question from Twitter here. Uh, what role did the tree of life play in the covenant of works in the garden? Did Adam eat from it during his probation? If not, would he have eaten it later as the confirmation of the reward of eternal life? And that is open to anyone on the panel who wants to try to tackle it. I'll just say this. I'm I'm the online professor of record for Reformed Theological Seminary's Covenant Theology course. I haven't done a statistical count. I think I get asked that question by students probably more than any other. I'm, I'm not quite sure the grip of fascination it has. I mean, it's an important question in its own right, but um, I, I think briefly there's we have to work with what we have and god has only revealed so much so we want to be modest in our uh, affirmations i I just run to conclusions i i don't think adam either did or was meant to eat of the tree of life during his probation i think it was set before him following his probation uh, coupled with the confirmation of heightened eschatological life and I, I'd argue that in part from the reemergence of the tree of life and at the end of Revelation uh, that is held out to us in the state of consummation. That's how I'd see it functioning. All right. If there's no disagreement, I'll, I'll jump to another question. So I think, Dr. Wellman, there were sort of two questions that kept popping up regarding your view. So I'd be curious on, number one, a couple of people mentioned, it, it seems you affirm sort of like, I guess the theological structure underneath what a covenant of works is, but there seems to be people who would be want to call themselves progressive covenantalists who would say, no, there is no covenant of works. Um, so your opinion on that. And then the, the other one that kept coming up was um, if, if the moral standard for old, old Testament era pagans, I guess, what is that? I mean, I mean, I, let me read this right here. So what do new covenant theology Progressive, progressive covenantalists, either of them, adherents believe was the moral standard Old Testament era pagans were judged by. And then how do we know what loving God and loving neighbor is without the Decalogue in the New Testament? So I guess those are two sort of questions that are probably pretty big. Um, so, But I wanted to get them in there because they kept coming up. Yeah, thanks for asking those. Um, first, let me say, uh, just because someone says they're progressive covenantalists doesn't make them one. Um, you've got all kinds of people jumping on bandwagons that, uh, that actually distort your view. Uh, we also have distinguished ourselves. Um, we've done this, um, we've had to do this, right, from the New Covenant theology, just simply because there's too many 
versions of New Covenant theology and, 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 and so on, right? So, so uh, I've affirmed from the very beginning, even though people are slowly recognizing this, that I've held to a covenant of creation, which is basically a covenant of works. We call it covenant of creation, as there are debates in, um, in Reformed covenant, uh, uh, classic covenant theology over the terminology. And uh, we didn't want to just simply reduce it to, to works. There's more going on in, in the garden, yet it is a real covenant. It is that which is, is tied to a promise. It's tied. So uh, I'm happy to affirm covenant works, but we mean the same thing. But many people don't, right? And many new covenant people uh, don't. And that's why I've said no more of the label, uh, because we're not going to uh, identify our view with it. So we still have people who want to say, oh, we like what you're doing, but we deny covenant of, of creation or covenant of works. I say, well, that's not the view. And, uh, you know, it, you can't do much about it. Um, in terms of the issues of moral law as well, again, a major, major confusion on this. We, I, I, I've written that uh, I don't think the tripartite distinction is, is the, the way by which you just simply apply moral law to you today. All right? that, it's not that the tripartite distinction doesn't have a long pedigree, it's not that it's not useful, uh, and, and so on. I just don't see the Old Covenant div dividing it up that way, or the New Testament author simply saying, well, this now applies and this doesn't apply type of thing. Yet, obviously, with that said, the, uh, the Decalogue um, is that which reflects, I would ultimately argue, now we're going to have to talk about Sabbath, but um, the Decalogue, for the most part, uh, reflects creation demand. And uh, so I would argue that from the very beginning in creation, tied to a creation covenant, a creation uh, a covenant of works, is the love of God and neighbor. And I could flesh that out in terms of image likeness, our relation to God, our relation to one another. That is the demand which then gets picked up um, in the other covenants, clearly picks up in the Decalogue. It's given specificity. It's worked out in terms of the nation of Israel. But what law are we under? Love of God and neighbor, and it's working itself out, right? The great commandment is there from the very beginning. So I affirm the Decalogue. I mean, I have no problem. That basically reflects love of God and neighbor. Now, the problem with simply just treating the Decalogue as eternal moral law that I just apply over without any qualification of where I'm at in terms of the covenants, its fulfillment, is the Sabbath issue, right? So there's where there's disagreement for myself. Um, I do not see that Scripture uh, has the Sabbath day command transferred from the Old Covenant ultimately to the New Covenant, but that's a long argument tied to creation order, tied to the structures of the Old Covenant, tied to uh, what rest means, the typological nature. So it's a command under the Old Covenant, but it's also typological. It also points, it's prophetic. I think that is fulfilled in Christ, yet there is a Lord's Day. So you'd have to flesh all of that out. But bottom line is, the law that we're under ultimately is uh, is the all great right. commandment. Well, um, I guess that'll do it for audience questions. Jordan, do you have anything you want to say uh, as we wrap up? No, I just want to say thanks to everybody who joined us uh, in the audience, as well as our guests here who've been participating and providing some helpful discussion. It looks like from everything that I've been able to try to track as far as comments that this has been really helpful. So thanks for everybody doing this. Uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed it. And as a reminder, I mean, I'm going to give away some of these books, but don't forget, if you don't get them, uh, you should go ahead and buy them anyway. So we've got Dr. Waters' gigantic covenant theology book. This one's is pretty new. You've got a ton of authors in here. I mean, you've got 
600 plus pages worth of quality content in here, as well as the 15 different books that Dr. Wellam's been involved in, which will give you more than 600 pages worth of quality content. And then, of course, Dr. Renahan, who's been a publishing machine. Uh, he's got, I mean, The Mystery of Christ, which I think a lot of our listeners love. So go check these books out. I'll try to link to them, get some copies of them, as well as the articles. Um, if Unless there's any closing comments from any of you guys, I'll go ahead and wrap up. So I'll give you a chance to give your closing words if anybody has anything they feel like they missed that they want to say before we close up. I just want to quickly get in. Thank you so much, guys. Really appreciate the time. I, I, I'm, uh, I stand in awe of all of you guys, so keep going and uh, thankful for this opportunity. Yeah, I just want to say thank you uh, for, for having the discussion and allowing you know, us to discuss these matters uh, very very important and we have certainly more agreement than than not uh, i told myself don't ask don't ask but i have to ask michael what's tomorrow like the future is bright brother the future is bright <laughs> yeah my, my thanks to all and i think what I'll take away most from our discussion, it was clarifying, but I appreciated the brotherly spirit of it. So thank you. Cool. Well, awesome. Thanks, guys. Everybody's been listening. Don't forget to tune in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you all soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.